All right. So this is a part two of a study we began last week on humility. Of course, this is all a part of attitude adjustment. And um, there's a couple of reasons why we're spending two weeks on humility. And one, to be honest, is that I needed some time off last week, and it's easier to do a two-part lesson than two different lessons. I'm just being honest about that. But that really just kind of worked out for me, because the reason this lesson is long is the Bible has a lot to say about humility. And humility is a difficult attitude to develop. In fact, it may be one of the most difficult because of the temptation of pride. We spent most of last week talking about pride as the opposite of humility. And uh, I meant to go through all these, get to the right place on the slide before we started class. But we went over 10 Bible teachings about pride. And of course, we don't have time to review all those this morning. And uh, we got to the end of that and saw how destructive pride was. And we defined humility insofar as we saw its opposite of pride. Then we had a little time to start getting into understanding humility and defining that. And we got halfway through that. And so I want to finish our definition of humility, finish our exercise in understanding humility. And then at the end of class, we'll look at seven steps towards developing humility in our lives and making that important attitude adjustment. So if you're ready, uh, get your Bibles ready. There's going to be a lot of, of Scripture this morning in class. And we'll review the first two points on understanding humility, noting quickly, first of all, we talked about it's not the same thing as having a low self-esteem. We're not talking about trashing your identity or thinking lowly of yourself. If you think that's what humility is, you're confusing it maybe with humiliation. But we're talking about a positive trait that you choose, that you have some control over. Number two, we notice that humility doesn't mean your contributions are unimportant. They may not be recognized. You may not get a pat on the back for everything that you do. But that doesn't mean it's unimportant. Some jobs and some roles are relatively invisible compared to others. And in this world, the value of those jobs is not always recognized. And uh, it's, it's often unfair. Uh, the people in the spotlight stand on the shoulders of others behind them. And that's just the way things work. But humility is not about saying, well, you know, this person is better than me. His contributions are better than me. That's not the proper way to look at humility either. Okay, now for some new material. Number three, let's go to positive. We saw two things humility is not. It's not having low self-esteem. It doesn't mean your contributions are unimportant. What is it? Well, here's number three. Humility is being willing to accept less than you deserve. And that's my favorite definition of humility. Because it's voluntary. 
It's not forced on you. You are willing to accept this thing that you're getting less recognition than you deserve to get. And hopefully by now you know Christianity is not about getting what you deserve. You know, none of us really wants that because the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, that's what we all deserve. And we're saved by grace. Grace is all about unmerited favor. Well, humility then is a grace that you practice. You give people the gift of not having to recognize your true value, at least out loud. And maybe mentally they don't even know your true value. And that's a gift you give to other people. Have you ever thought about it that way? Think about if you had to recognize every contribution to your life. Maybe you try, but can you fully do that? Do you intend on writing a card of encouragement to somebody and forget to do it week after week after week until so much time has gone by that it's, it would almost be an insult to them to send the card later? Do you know that someone makes your life possible and you don't thank them every day for it? Uh, a friend of mine lost his mother really early in life. And uh, he was actually closer to Barton and McKenzie. I think it was Barton, my brother Barton, who called him after his mother died. And he asked him how he's doing. And, and the guy told him, he said, call your mother. Call your mother every day. Well, how many of us are good about recognizing the importance that a parent has been to us on a daily basis, as much as they deserve. We can't do it, right? Our lives would be overwhelmed if we expressed the gratitude that everyone in our lives deserves. It's a gift from them to be humble enough to continue contributing to our lives without that pat on the back. So you can give that gift to others in your life. You can be willing to accept less than you deserve. And so that, that's not an attack on your value. That's not saying your contributions are unimportant. It's saying your value is high. Your contributions are very important. But you can get through life without people recognizing that. And you're willing to do that. You want to do that. You want to be that person that doesn't get the recognition. It's a peaceful lack of desperation. Because if, if you have that desperation in your life, it's never going to be satisfied. If you need people to pat you on the back, what's eventually going to happen? You're going to quit doing things for other people. You're going to grow bitter because they're not going to pat you on the back for everything that you do. You're going to quit doing good things because you're not going to get what you deserve. And so eliminate that need and you will contribute more, you will do more. And from time to time, you will get recognition. But that's not the reward you're looking for. The only thing you're looking for is when Christ comes back, 
and sits on his glorious throne, you hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You need God's approval, and that's all the approval you need. The rest of it is just icing on the cake, right? So that's humility, being willing to accept less than you deserve. And there's one more point here. Humility is the true nature of God. Now, of all people, God deserves all the praise, all the worth, all the value, all the glory. And he's clear about that. He states that. He knows that very well. But is that his nature to grasp at it, to be desperately in need of it? It is not. And a great passage on attitudes that we'll come back to later in the quarter is Philippians 2. Let's, let's go over to Philippians 2. We're going to spend a minute on this. <clears throat> Verse 5 says, Let this, or Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Nathan, do you have your New American Standard Bible? Read that. So instead of mind, what word does he have there? Attitude. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Um, Most of us grew up learning, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Your mind and your attitude are very closely related. I think the New American Standard Bible has it right here. This is an attitude that Christ had. Let's look at the description of it. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, form is from the Greek word morphe. Morphe means not just the uh, appearance of a thing, but the actual substance. So it's saying he was God. Though he was God in his preexistent state, he did not account, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So being God, Paul is saying Christ was not a desperate, grasping, clutching, seizing kind of being. That's not the true nature of God. God is not desperate for your attention. He deserves worship and it pleases Him when we worship Him. There's a, there's a balance here in our thinking about worship. Uh, we talk about that phrase, a pleasing aroma, that you see throughout the Old Testament whenever the offerings were given. It was a pleasant aroma. And uh, it's almost like we think sometimes God needs those sacrifices. He's just fine without them. He does not lose one thing when you neglect Him or when you reject Him. Now, He... He can be emotional about it. He can be grieved. He can be sorrowful on your behalf, but not because he's missing something in his life. That is not the nature of God. To be needy. Okay, that's what verse 6 means in Philippians 2. Christ being God was not a desperate, clutching, seizing kind of being. Let's go on. Oh, go ahead. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think I could preface that by saying, lowering your expectations 
lower your expectations of others and accept less. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Your expectations of others. Yeah, I think humility is a lot about lowering expectations. Um, but not in this pitiful way. And I know that's not what you mean. Not in a self-pitying way. Well, you know, this is, this is the hand I've been dealt. You know, but you, in the interest of this wonderful attribute of humility, you're willing to do that. You're willing to do that. And God is willing to do that. It's, it's not that he has to will himself into this. This is who he is. Okay, so let's look at the next verse, verse 7. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, of humanity, and being found in human form. So there the word form, morphe, occurs a second time in this passage. The first time was form of God, verse 6. Here, verse 8, it's human form. He was actually God, and he was just as much actually human. And we're not saying he traded divinity for humanity. We know from other passages in the Bible, he was still God. So at this point, he changed and became, went from being just 100% God to both 100% God, 100% human is a significant change. It did not rob him of his, of his um, divinity, but it was a, a significant change. So he was found in human form, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's a descending order here, and it goes from, I know it's not exactly the order of the wording, but the thought here is he he made himself nothing, and here's how he did it. Going down the staircase, human, servant, obedient, obedient to the point of death, obedient to the point of death on a cross. This is God. Jesus is the Son of God. This is God. He's not a seizing desperate being, but instead he is willing to accept less than he deserves. Did Jesus deserve to be transformed into a human, to be born a human? Did he deserve to be a servant, to wash people's feet? Is that what he deserved? Did he deserve to die? He didn't sin. Why did he have to die? And then did he deserve the death of the cross, which involves so much humiliation? You know, throughout the trials of Jesus up to his death, they stripped him naked at least four times. Imagine the humiliation that he went through. And this, again, wasn't him forcing himself through it. 
It's his nature. So when you're asked to be humble in the Bible, God is not asking you to do something he is unwilling to do. And really, I should put it this way. God is not asking you to do something he is unwilling to be. He is humble. He's asking you to be like him. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Jesus says, I am meek and lowly in heart. Heart is the attitude. So he is humble. He is lowly in his heart. So hopefully that helps define humility a little bit. Uh, anybody else want to say something about the nature of humility before we get into steps toward developing it? <clears throat> All right. If Oh, go ahead, Cindy. Yes. Well, it, it's very closely tied to love because love is about putting the other person first. And I don't think you can love somebody in a biblical way without humility. Right? Mm-hmm. If you do get it back, then more power. I think there's a verse like that. More power to you. But yeah. give without expecting anything in return. Yeah, that's what Jesus says in Luke uh, six thirty-five through thirty-eight. Give expecting nothing in return. Uh, God will reward you, right, Linda? Yeah, I like that. That's right. It's your character. But you can develop your character. Sometimes we make the mistake of saying, well, if you're asking me to be something, I already am who I am. I can't change who I am. No, you can change who you are, and that's what attitude adjustments are all about. Okay, so let's get into developing who you are in this way, developing your character of humility. First of all, Another, I thought about putting this away. My dad would say it. Growing up, he would often say to us, you're not as good as you think you are, you know, whenever we get a little out of place. Uh, know your true nature. I thought I'd bring it up a little bit from, you're not as good as you think you are. Know your true nature. Look at Psalm 9, verse 20. <clears throat> Put them in fear, O Lord... Let the nations know, and nations is often the Old Testament for Gentiles. Let the nations know they are but men, which means here human beings. Let them know when you put the fear of the Lord in them, they are not God, they are mortals who are flawed. So know that you sin, recognize that you fail, recognize that you often misunderstand people's motives and their words. And uh, as human beings, know that we all have limits and we have to depend on other people. And know that we are not God. 
And that can be a very humbling experience. Turn over to Isaiah 6. Isaiah could have been a proud person. He was a very talented person, very important, politically connected, gifted in many ways. But he had this vision early in his ministry that set him on the path of humility. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So he sees this vision of God in his glory on his throne in heaven. What's his reaction when he thinks about God? Look at verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So knowing your true nature is also about knowing God's true nature. And when Isaiah sees this, he feels undone. Woe is me. I'm in trouble. I'm unclean. I live in the midst of a people who are unclean. That will bring you down to size when you know who God is. So that's the first thing. Know the true nature of God. Yeah, Jimmy. <clears throat> yeah. Where were you when fill in the blank? Yes. Job was dealing with... Of course, we don't want to judge Job because he did a lot better than any of us would do, but... He was dealing with a little pride. And uh, this is the way God brought him down to size. It reminded him of his true nature. I'm God, you're human. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a great example. That's the first step. Let's look at number two. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. This takes us back to a passage we looked at last week, Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Paul says, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We used it last week, making the point that humility is not thinking is not a low self-esteem. And we used the implication of this verse last week, which was there is a way you ought to think about yourself, and you shouldn't think more lowly of yourself than that standard. But here's the immediate application of the passage. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Think with sober judgment. Don't go out of your mind drunk with pride is the way that he's putting us here. Think soberly. See yourself as others see you. 
Know God's standard for your self-worth. Know what God has said about you and live by faith in that way. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 6.3, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Do you want to live a lie? Is that very helpful? Of course not. So know who you are and don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Number three, count others as more significant than yourself. Is this a tough one? This is a hard one. Because we know our motives. We know our own hearts. We know our circumstances. We know our own struggles. We know our own value. And uh, we don't know anybody else more intimately than we know ourselves, right? And so we give ourselves a break when we don't do so with others. But we're, asked, we're being asked to count others more significant than ourselves. Let's look at Philippians 2, which is where we were a minute ago. Uh, we were looking at verses 5 and following about Jesus. Leading up to that, though, is Paul's teaching on humility. And uh, we'll start with verse 3 of Philippians 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, is he telling you others are more significant than you? I see some heads shaking no, and you're correct. Count others. It's the language of accounting, like a logbook. And in your logbook, you give everybody an A and you give yourself a B. Okay, but that doesn't mean you necessarily got a B. But you're going to live your life this way. It's not, it's not about living a lie. You know what's going on here. You're practicing humility. You're willing to accept less than you deserve. You're willing to put the focus on others. And when the others are doing the same thing, it's a really beautiful thing. We never quite get there, but that's the idea, is that everybody is doing this. See, the church in Philippi, we learn later in chapter 4, is having a lot of unity issues, a lot of division. There's a couple of sisters that Paul calls out, Yodia and Syntyche. He says he's commanding them to agree in the Lord. Well, he's already told them how to do that. The only way they can do it is to count the other person more significant than themselves and look after their interests instead of their own interests. So it's not necessarily the fact that others are more important than you. It's how you choose to think. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. It's, a good, it's good marriage advice, definitely. Uh, you say complete each other, so you, you complement one another. You're looking after him, he's looking after you, and then you don't have to worry about yourself. And so what works in marriage, if you can expand that out 
into your congregation, into your neighborhood, into your community, into your school, into your workplace. Just think what a wonderful place the world would be. This is the ideal. And you may say, well, the world's not like that. Well, the only thing you can do to start making it closer to that is living it yourself. You start with yourself, and if you're thinking about the others as more important than you, then you've got enough to, to handle just with that. Okay, let's go on to uh, this number four. Remember that you are indebted. Okay, so several passages here. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul asks, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, can anybody answer that question with something to put in the blank? Let's sit down and take a test. First question, what do you have that you did not receive? Answer that question. I hear grace from a couple of people. Yeah. You receive you receive you received grace though. You received salvation. What your your house you received that. Your car you received that. You say no, I'm making payments on it. Well, did you build it? Did you manufacture the metal in it? Did you invent the mechanics of it? Did you engineer it? You depended, there's nothing you have that you haven't depended on someone for. An employer gives you the money to go buy the car which somebody else manufactured according to designs built by others, engineered by others, with materials mined by others, and so on. So none of us has anything that we haven't received. We've received all things. So we shouldn't boast as if we have not received it. And then you have 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Well-known statement by Paul as he was talking about himself as the least of the apostles. By the grace of God, I am what I am. So again, it's kind of the reverse side of what he said in chapter 4. Uh, everything that I am has come by the grace of God. It's a gift. And then let's go back to Deut Deuteronomy chapter 8. We looked at this last week. A warning from Moses. And uh, I'll start reading verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gained me this wealth. That's a very dangerous position to put yourself in. So know you are indebted, first of all, to God. 
and then to many others in your life for who you are today and what you have. Recognize that. Let's go to the next one. Put pride in its proper place. You know, pride is natural. I think all the emotions we're capable of have a place. They become sinful whenever we use them improperly. And so pride has a place. And let's look at a few examples here. Uh, Romans 15, 17. Paul's talking about his work as a missionary and a minister of the gospel. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Are we going to look at that and say, Paul is guilty of sinful pride? Use the word proud, but he's proud of his work for God. And to God be the glory. Galatians 6.14 Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We'll come back to that idea in a moment. 1 Corinthians 1.31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So you can boast, just boast in the Lord, which amounts to the Lord has done this for me. The Lord has done this in my life. The Lord has given me this. All that I have, I've received from the Lord. That's where pride should be, and that's the only place where pride should be. Otherwise, it becomes very dangerous. What does Proverbs 16, 18 say? Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So we know the warning there. Okay, next one. Crucify yourself. Paul mentions this in Galatians six fourteen that he'd been crucified to the world. Uh, he said this earlier in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Jesus, we all know Jesus was crucified on a cross in Calvary in the first century. And we know how horrible that death was. What does he mean when he says we are to crucify ourselves? Are we to climb on a cross? Crucify the old man of sin. That goes back to Romans 6. And in baptism, a death occurs, right? That old person who let sin reign in its body has gone away and a new person rises who is led by Christ. It's not I, Paul says, who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Is it just doing away with the sin? It's a total commitment, right? Crucifixions like burning the bridge. Uh, or like the Spanish explorer who burned all his ships down so nobody could go back. Um, you're, you're not going back. Crucifixion is a permanent thing. 
I also think about it in terms of what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, the cross of crucifixion, and follow me. That's crucifixion of the self. It's a self-denial because you're putting Christ first. So you have your own ambitions. You have your own pride. You have your own ways of dealing with the world. You're going to put that aside, and by faith, you're going to live by Christ. Uh, I think I have just one more here. Finally, to develop humility, accept that you are insufficient without God. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you believe that? That you are insufficient without Christ? I tell you, if everybody believed that, this church building would be spilling over. We'd never have trouble meeting our budget. We'd never have trouble with division. People would love one another because we know how much in need we are. But we let that blindness of Deuteronomy 8 cloud our judgment so often we start thinking, by my own strength, by my own power, I've gotten what I have. And we forget what Jesus said. His own words, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, we know people who've made billions of dollars without Jesus. But that's nothing the day they die. Life is short. So where does the money go? Ecclesiastes answers all those questions, right? We know people who become famous... There's a lot of people who were world famous a hundred years ago that we don't, we've never even heard of now. All will be forgotten. The memory of you will be forgotten. All your money will go to somebody else. Then what do you have if you don't have Christ? For me to live as Christ and to die is gain if you choose the path of humility. So remember that. Apart from Christ, you are nothing, you can do nothing. He's the only one that can make you sufficient. These are steps toward developing humility. Does anybody want to add anything here at the end? We're going to move on to a different attitude next week. All right, if not, thank you for your attention this morning. We're, we're finished.